Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you all today, and I do promise I won't go into drive-through mode and speak really fast, even though I am from the north. I understand I'm not there anymore, and as Cameron said, he challenged me on that, so I'll hold to it. If you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 48. And as you turn there, I'd just like to explain a little bit about why we're going to examine this text in particular this morning. You see, these verses are very significant in the history of the church because they're the first sermon that was ever proclaimed to the Gentiles. And so as we've been talking about the Abrahamic Covenant and the Great Commission for the past couple of months, this is where the rubber meets the road. Where for the first time, people who are not the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, hear the good news of God's grace and of Jesus Christ. And so this is going to tie up everything we've been talking about for two months right here in these couple of verses in Acts. And at the same time, through this sermon, the Lord will equip us with hope in Him as we go out to live out the Great Commission. Because if we don't have this hope, if we don't understand God's grace and His work in making the Great Commission a reality... And we could feel the burden of that on ourselves and think, well, man, this is all on us. We could despair or we could just give up and say, who cares? Why should we bother? And so this this text, this sermon of Peter's is critical for us. And so let's now turn to it. Again, that's Acts uh, chapter 10, verses 34 through 48. Hear the word of the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he said, sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and who drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. As we turn to this, running throughout Peter's sermon is this key truth. And that's that the triune God faithfully fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. And he graciously equips his redeemed people and involves them in the work of this mission. Now we're going to break this down into three points as we go through the text. Peter's text, this is actually a sermon, so it breaks into three points really nicely. And first, we're going to look at the impartiality of the Father in the scope of redemption. And then second, we're going to look at what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What's the Messiahship of Jesus all about? And then third and finally, we're going to ponder the power of the Holy Spirit in changing hearts and in equipping us for the work of the Great Commission. So in verses 35, or 34 and 35, we have our first point, the impartiality of the Father. 
Now, this actually flows out of rest of this chapter in Acts 10. It's a big chapter, so I didn't read all of it. We'd be here all morning. I'm not going to preach on every verse. But what's going on is if you look back in the beginning, you're going to meet a man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a captain in the Roman army, but he was also what's called a devout man or a God-fearer. That meant that he worshipped the true God, the God of Israel, but he didn't actually become a full Jew. So he wasn't circumcised. He was still a Gentile, but he was worshipping God. He was making some progress in his faith. And then one day, his life was changed forever because an angel appears to him and says, God has heard your prayers. You need to send for a man named Peter from the town of Joppa where he's staying right now and you need to have him come back to you because he's got something to tell you. And so Cornelius sends out his men and they go to find Peter. And at the same time, God then gives Peter a vision. And this is a remarkable vision. And in it, he teaches Peter one key truth. And that's that he should call no food or no person common or unclean. And so in this way, Peter was learning that in Christ, God was now breaking down these barriers that had arisen over time between the Jews and the rest of the world, the Gentiles. Because if you look closely at what uh, Peter says in verse 38, he says how it was unlawful for the Jews to eat with the Gentiles. Now, if you were to search the Old Testament, you could do that all day if you wanted. You wouldn't find a specific text that says, hey, Jews, do not go and have a backyard barbecue with the Gentiles. That's, that's, that's not allowed. But what you will find is a very strict set of dietary laws. And the Jews, there are certain foods that if they ate them, they'd be unclean in God's eyes and their worship. And these laws set them apart from the rest of the world. And so basically, that over time turned into a hostility towards the Gentiles because they didn't want to go and eat with them because they were like, man, if there's bacon and there's baked, uh, baked beans, then I'm in trouble. I've got to go through all the work to get ceremonially clean again. And so they just said, forget it. I'm not going to try. And over the years, that then morphed and festered and degenerated into a hostility for the Gentiles. And that, as we've seen all along, is totally antithetical to the Abrahamic covenant. They forgot God's purpose for the nations. But now, through this vision that God gives to Peter, he's showing him he should not call any person common or unclean. And so the vision that Peter receives is, uh, declares all food and all persons cleans, and therefore it's undoing this Jewish misunderstanding of God's redemptive purposes. It's bringing the focus upon the nations back to the center of the equation. Now this theological insight that God is impartial and desires to save people from all nations, it is extremely encouraging because if you think about it, most of us probably are not Jewish. And so none of us would be sitting here if this weren't true. But at the same time, I, uh, I recognize that if we look at these verses, this can be confusing because we need to pause for a moment and really ask, what does it mean that God's impartial? There's a lot to unpack there. And the first thing is actually in verse 35. It's a little puzzling because it almost sounds like Peter's saying, well... God only likes those who worship and fear Him, which is true in a sense. But then we might wonder, well, okay, what's going on here? Is He contradicting Paul, who stresses, we're not saved by our works, we're saved by faith. Is the Bible contradicting itself? And so we need to stop, we need to ask, what is going on here? And the thing we have to remember is that the insight that Peter's been given by God, that he should call no person common or unclean, that God desires to save people from all nations, that's what's going on here. It's about whom God is interested in saving. So the same word, acceptable, is used elsewhere in the Bible and in ancient times in Greek to talk about who is welcome in someone's home or who is welcome in a town. So it's not talking about your legal standing, your righteousness before God. It's talking about the scope of God's plan of redemption. And as we've learned, that scope is global. 
There is no race, no personality, no background that is too messy or far off for God to save by His grace. And so remember with Cornelius, he would never have feared God. He never would have been praying to this God who was foreign to him if God had not already stirred up in his heart a desire to know Him. So he's not earning his salvation here. The point about impartiality is not to define then how people are saved. It's rather to spell out the scope of who can be saved, who God wants to save. So there's always only one way of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the power of the Spirit. And yet that one way is open to anyone, anywhere, throughout all of history, because God is impartial, and He wants to save people from all nations. But then we come upon a second point of confusion, and that's really with the word impartial itself. Because... In our cultural context, that word suddenly sounds like, well, you know what? God wants to save all kinds of people. Why should he care about what I think, what I believe, what I do? As long as I don't hurt people, I'm, I'm in. That's the religion of the world today, right? And I mean, if he, the Jews, for example, we know they were crazy. That's what the world would say. They would look at the Jews and say they were proud and selfish people for thinking that God only would have wanted to save them. How dare they? God wants to save everybody, right? And if they don't hurt anyone, then they're good. They're in. That's the spirit of the world. And so the question then is, is God a tolerant God? Does impartial mean God doesn't care what you do, what you believe about Him? He just wants you to kind of seek Him in a vague sense. And so again, because of where we live and when we live, we may be tempted to say yes. And we can even point to Scripture. We can say, well, look, 1 John 4.8 says God is love. And the way we tend to define love is this. We say, love is accepting people for who they are, no questions asked, and no objections raised. But this, I think, if we look back upon it and we really think what this means, we'll see it's a frictionless definition of love. What I mean by that is it can't challenge you to grow. It can't point out your flaws. It can't do what's best for you because it can't question anything about you, even if that thing is for your harm and is destroying you. And so it's a powerless definition of love. And so we have to thank God that this is not His definition of love. Think about our passage real quick. Why would God have sent Peter to open his mouth and declare the gospel to Cornelius if God didn't care what Cornelius thought or believed or did in his worship? Because if you look back at verse 2 at the beginning of the chapter, Cornelius is giving alms to the poor. He's a good guy. He's not hurting anybody. So what more could God want? Cornelius is seeking him, right? But he hadn't yet arrived, Cornelius. Because he didn't yet know Jesus. And you see, all roads may have led to Rome, but not every path of religious seeking leads to God. Jesus is the only way. And God was going to do everything he had to do to make sure he brought Cornelius all the way home to him, to save him. That's why he sends Peter. Because he's not a tolerant God. And so we have to thank God that his love is not tolerant, but rather it is transformative. That means His love doesn't bury or overlook or tolerate the darkness of sin in our lives or in this world. His love draws us out of darkness and brings us into light. In declaring all men clean, God was destroying the Jews' misbegotten assumption that the people like the Gentiles were not in the realm of God's concern, that He didn't care about them. So God is always, in Christ, recreating a people for Himself, made up of individuals from all nations, from all backgrounds. And so we have to remember that this redemptive work of God, it has a direction to it. It's not just aimless seeking. It has a direction. It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
And so, of course, God is a God of grace. He calls us to come to Him as we are so He can save us. But He doesn't leave you where you are. His grace, His love transforms you. It doesn't tolerate your darkness. And so remember, look at the Gospels. He takes tax collectors, prostitutes, and fishermen, people who are rejected and outcast in society, and He turns them into sons and daughters and disciples and witnesses. And he does that still today. He takes drive through workers. He takes teachers. He takes mechanics. He takes all of us and he sends us out to all the nations. Because he saved us from all backgrounds and he's going to keep doing that until he comes again. And he doesn't do this by tolerance but by transformative grace. Because tolerance, remember, leaves us where we are. But grace brings us nigh unto the impartial God. Who desires to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that transformative love of God is the only hope that there is for the whole world. But then we have to ask ourselves as we come to our second point. In verses 36 to 43, how does this happen? Because we know there's darkness, we know there's sin, we know there's brokenness. How does God just, He doesn't just wish it away or something like that. How does He bring us home? What happened? What happened is that Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, came and He died for our sins. But this word Messiah... It's a little puzzling. I think some of us, maybe we could give a two-sentence answer, and after that, if we're pushed, we run out of things to say. And so that's, that's our second point here. We're going to unpack this, and we're going to look at what this means and why it matters for us, why it's a hope for new creation. And so the word Messiah is in Hebrew means anointed one, and the word Christ in Greek is actually the same word for Messiah. It's a translation. And in Hebrew, Messiah meant anointed one. And anointing is just when you had oil or some sort of liquid smeared upon or sprinkled upon your face. And it meant you were set apart for service. It sounds kind of weird to us, but the way to think about it is sort of like the oath of office that the president uh, swears when he becomes president. It's the swearing-in ceremony. And so for the Israelites, the anointed one, the Messiah, referred to someone who was set apart for kingly service. And that, in that way, too, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And we see this... If you remember, with Saul, Israel's first king. He's anointed by Samuel, and he receives the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know your Old Testament a little bit, you know that Saul is a lousy king. He is not someone you want running for office. He does a terrible job. He's a selfish guy, and he gets Israel in a lot of trouble, and he's a coward to make things better, even though he looked good. That didn't help him at all. And as a result, though, of his disobedience, what happens is God takes the Spirit from him, and he gives it to David. Now, David is someone the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. And you know David's history doesn't end well either because he sins. And if you read Psalm 51, verse 11, David's famous prayer of confession, there's that troubling verse, verse 11, that says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And most of us, we read that like, Oh man, like, does that mean God's going to take my salvation from me if I mess up? Well, no. What David's talking about is he knows what happened to Saul. He knows that when Saul was a bad king and was unfaithful, God took the Spirit from him. And he knows that he, as a king, stands in a way where he could too lose the spirit if God wanted. So it wasn't talking about his salvation. It was talking about his role as king. By God's grace, David did not lose the spirit and he was forgiven. And yet, his failures and Saul's failures set the tone for the entire history of Israel and their kings. And so their sinfulness and their brokenness is why God's promise to David in 2 Samuel, verse, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I mean, is really important. This is what sometimes we call the Davidic covenant. It flows out of the Abrahamic covenant, and it focuses all of that on the king of Israel. And listen to these verses, verses 14 and 16, because they're really important from 2 Samuel 7. 
God says to David, I will be to him that is your son, a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now this promise sets the tone for the rest of the Old Testament history of Israel. Because the kings will sin again and again and again, and they will fail. But as we learned during Advent, the good kings, they could never make it last. Their throne in and of itself could never last forever because they were sinful too. But the bad kings who were wicked and evil, they could never thwart God's plan either. The promise stood firm because God was the one who was going to fulfill the promise. And all of that history, all of that Old Testament comes right up to Jesus. As Peter says in verse 38, because he says, Jesus is that king. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one whose reign will endure forever. Because he, as you notice too, is the one who is anointed by the Spirit and by power. So that's right there the basic definition of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. He's that king who is anointed with the Spirit and with power and his reign will be forever. And then Peter goes on though and he says... And look at what this man did, this king, Jesus, the Messiah, did in his life. He gives us two major things. He says, first, Jesus did good, and he healed people. But he didn't just heal people, he healed people who were oppressed by the devil. And that, again, is key for understanding what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. Because this is where Jesus' Messiahship goes far deeper than what the Jews were expecting. They had political dreams. They had become to think that the Messiah would come in and just throw off the burden of Roman rule, that he'd get rid of taxes, that he'd cut government back. And, you know, that doesn't sound familiar at all. But, you know, he, they were like, all right, this guy's going to do it for us. We're going to have our own country. It's going to be great. We're going to go back to our roots. But think about that for a second, because if that's what the Messiah was, what would that matter a lick for you or me? And it wouldn't matter at all. It wouldn't be worth a hill of beans because one regime change 2,000 years ago would be something maybe you learn in high school AP history and then you forget for the rest of your life. So the fact that Jesus was healing those who were oppressed by the devil, by Satan, harkens all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the beginning of the Bible, the first promise that God ever gives for redemption. And so the reign, this reign of Christ that will endure forever was always a cosmic reign. The enemies he came... To crush were not the Romans. They weren't government. They weren't even high taxes. They were sin, death, and Satan. That's why the Messiahship of Jesus matters for you and for me today. Because those are the enemies that no matter what political regimes rise up in America or around the world, those principalities of sin, death, and Satan, they're the ones who are the source of all of the oppression. And yet Christ on the cross defeated them. He's won the war. The battle still rages, but he's won the war. And that's why it matters for you and me today. And when we keep in mind, though, that cosmic reign of Christ, that helps explain the last bit of this sermon that Peter gives. Because if you look at verses 39 to 41, that's the part that we all know pretty well. That's the part about Jesus dying on the cross. That's the part about the resurrection. Everything we're about to celebrate in the Easter season is right there. But that's not where the sermon ends. Because in verse 42, Peter introduces the idea of God appointing Jesus to be judge of the living and of the dead. And you don't hear about that too often. And we treat it sort of like this skeleton in God's closet. We don't want to talk about it. We're like, ah, yeah, that's there. But hey, Jesus, he loves you. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the judgment. He loves you. 
And why do we do that? Why are we so nervous and skittish around something in the Bible? Well, again, it's because in our culture today, judgment is taboo. The worst thing that can happen to you right now if you're in middle school or high school is to be caught judging somebody or if you're in college. When I was in middle school, if you were a nerd, which I was, that was bad. Now nerds are cool because they make money someday. But judging people, it's bad. You don't want to be caught judging people. And so we read this and we're like, oh man, the Bible, it judges people. So how is that the gospel? How is that good news? And we think, I can't ever share this with somebody because it's going to repel them. And in some ways, the gospel is offensive, and it's supposed to be. And if it's not offending people, then you're probably doing it wrong. But at the same time, this judgment isn't what the world means by judgment. It's actually hopeful for us. Because when Jesus comes again with the final judgment, he's coming back to put everything to right, to make all things new. It's the happily ever after, if I can riff off of the fairy tale story ending there. Because when he comes, he's going to make sure that everything is made new. That he will put an end to death, sin, and Satan. All wickedness. Sin will be th- or Satan will be thrown into hell if you read Revelation. That's where he's going. It's not his little party paradise. It's where he will be punished. And that's good news. That only comes when Christ's judgment has happened and it occurs at the end. And so he will restore creation to its fullest beauty. He will make us new and perfect And we will dwell with him forever. So the judgment is good news. But we have to understand what it means. And at the same time though, we do have to recognize that there's a tragic component to it. Because there will be those who die in their sins. And for them, Jesus' judgment will lead to eternal punishment in hell. But no Christian ought ever gloat in this. To be totally clear, our joy is not in the death of the wicked. And if you read Ezekiel 18.23, you'll see that God has no delight in the death of the wicked. And so Christians who proclaim sulfur and brimstone, who yell at the world that God delights in paying people back for their sins, He doesn't delight in that. He's a just God and He has to do that for His glory. But He delights in seeing sinners come home and made sons and daughters by His grace. That's where our hope is. Our hope is that God will take wicked sinners like you and I are and once were and make make us sons and daughters whom he loves. So the judgment, it will come. But as Peter says in verse 43, those who have faith in Jesus the Messiah, they will receive forgiveness for their sins. Those who are in Christ need not fear his judgment. The curse that our sins deserve was borne by him on the cross. And so judgment for Christians will therefore be the joyous declaration that everything that we have believed about Jesus, about God's grace, has now been fulfilled forever. And as Peter points out towards the end of his life, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, one of his epistles, he says God delays that judgment. Why? Does he not desire to put all things to right? Well, he does. But he also desires that the family would grow. And so he delays the judgment so that he may equip his people and may send them out. That more sinners may become sons and daughters. And so as we think about all of that, this election cycle, you can be sure that what really matters isn't who you're going to vote for. And I know for some of us, we're thinking, man, I don't know if there's going to be much of a choice at this point. And we could despair. But the point is, what matters is that you have a king. And that king's more powerful than the president. And that the hope for new creation, the hope for a good life is not found in a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, a Green Party, or whoever else you could come up with. In Delaware, we have a party called the Blue Enigmas. I don't know what it's about. But I can tell you, they don't have the hope for new creation either. The hope 
is in Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who has power and the Holy Spirit, whose reign will endure forever and whose reign is cosmic, who has defeated Satan and will come again. When he judges the living and the dead, he will make all things new. That's our hope. And that hope will endure Donald Trump, Clinton, or anybody else that gets elected. But that then brings us to our final point, which is in verses 44 through 48, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is how God equips us so that the family may grow, as Peter talks about in his epistle. He equips us so that his family may grow as he works through us. But as we come and start talking about the Holy Spirit, some of you, because we're good Presbyterians and Reformed, were lacing up your theological boxing gloves as soon as I read this passage because it talks about speaking in tongues. And if you're in the theological know-how at all, you know that that's a big question that you just pull out whenever you want to get a good fight going, you know, in in Christian love. And uh, you start talking about that. And you start talking about all of the spiritual gifts. And tongues is, is the crux of that argument. And while we could gain a lot from talking about that, We're not going to. I'm not just going to sidestep it. If you really are interested in it, you should read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Because that's where Paul talks about all of this. And it's challenging. And Cameron told me to tell you that if you really get into it, you can email him a big, fat, juicy email. Take up all his time. And he he really did tell me you could say that. At least you could send him an email. I added the other part. (laughs) Or you could talk to me too. I'm in seminary, so I should should get the practice of, of handling hard questions. And yet for our purposes, speaking in tongues, it does matter in this passage, but not that question we usually ask. We ask a bad question of the text. The important question is, why does this happen to Cornelius and his whole household of Gentiles? Because notice in verse 45, how did the Jews respond? They're amazed. They're amazed that the Spirit would come upon Gentiles. Because think about it, in the Jews' mind, the Gentiles are those who have never had the Word of God, They've never had the covenant promises. They've not had the law. They've never tried to observe it. Cornelius is kind of there, but he's a half-hearted guy. He can't make up his mind if he's going to be a Jew or not. And they weren't circumcised. They didn't have the sign of the covenant. So in the Jews' mind, they're like, what is happening? The very Spirit of God is coming upon those who are not His people. And that's weird to them. And yet Peter understands what's going on. Because he's been given this vision by God. He understands that God is declaring by this work of the Spirit that uncircumcised Gentiles are now a welcome part of his people, of his family in Christ, right alongside their Jewish brothers and sisters. So that's why then in verse 47, Peter calls for Cornelius and his entire household to be baptized and to receive the sign of the new covenant because they've been brought in. They are to receive that sign of the covenant because they've now received the Spirit in the same way the Jewish Christians had back at Pentecost. You see, in order to understand Acts 10 and everything going on here, you don't need to get into Pentecostal Presbyterian debates. You need to go back to Acts 2, where Pentecost happened. Because at Pentecost, even though the Spirit is poured out and people speak in tongues, and there are many languages, all the people who were there were still Jews. The Spirit had not yet moved out onto the Gentiles. This is when that happens. And because that's such a mind-blowing event... To the, to the Jews, God had to send His Spirit in a way that was undeniable that, yes, I'm bringing these people in. Yes, it shakes up your world. Yes, it shakes up your expectations. But I am the Lord. My word has gone out. It will not return void. And it is bringing these people into my family. And so speaking in tongues, it's not a super-Christian level of holiness in this passage. It's that undeniable evidence that the Gentiles have been brought in, that God is redeeming people from all nations. But here's a question for us. 
Does that surprise us? Does that kind of thing surprise us today? Because as Christians, 2,000 years later, we're pretty comfortable in our Christian world, an echo chamber. We can get kind of surprised when people we don't usually expect to come into the church suddenly start showing up. The Jews could hardly believe that Gentiles would receive the Holy Spirit. But what about us? I mean, are we surprised by the people God chooses to save, to bring through our doors? Do people keep showing up in our lives and we're like, man, why does this guy keep coming? He's annoying. He's weird. He doesn't really like Jesus. He cusses a lot. He drinks all the time. He's going out and getting plastered. But he just keeps talking to me. Why won't God just send him away? We get impatient like that. And so the question then is, do we let our own grudges, our impatience, or our preferences limit who we think should be saved? And if we do, do we not realize that we who were once lost but now found sinners, made sons, tell God, the Creator, the Redeemer, whom He can or cannot save? Because that's what we're doing when we act that way. And all of us do it. I do it. And so we have to repent of our pride and of our selfishness. And then we must go out and proclaim the gospel that's hard. And we can't just give ourselves a bunch of rah-rah Christian speeches and go out and think that we can do it on our own strength. We need the Spirit. Because it's hard enough to work up the courage to share the gospel with someone you know pretty well, with a lifelong friend even. And it's even harder then to love our enemies and to get over our grudges, our preferences, our selfishness, and to share the gospel with everybody. And if we're real for a second, sometimes it's as awkward as crossing that great girl-guy divide in a middle school dance just like, this is weird, I don't want to do it. But then you try it, and sometimes it's really awkward, no one follows you. And other times it's like as crazy as playing Frogger on I-75, because you get tired of being bulldozed by people saying, keep your religion to yourself, I don't want to hear about it, I don't care. And then, over time you say, well, why should I care? If they don't care, they've, they've dug their grave, they can just, they can just go lie down, and I don't, I don't care anymore. And some of us who are younger or are timid, we say, well, I haven't even had much experience of being pancaked like that, but I see other people getting like that, so maybe I shouldn't even try. I'll just keep going to church. I'll keep reading my Bible. I'll pray for this, but why should I go out and do it? Where's the hope and the mess, the joy? But look at what happens to Peter. Because here he is. He's proclaiming the gospel. Get this. He's proclaiming the gospel to people that three days earlier he never would have even had a meal with. And now he's standing up in front of them and he's proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you pay attention, verse uh, 44 points out that he doesn't even get to finish. If you look at his other sermons and acts, he follows, he says different things each time, but he follows a pretty normal structure and usually he has a call to repentance and that doesn't come. The Spirit doesn't wait. He shows up and he falls upon these people and he saves them. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the Spirit is powerful. And it tells us that He's not waiting for us to say the right words. He's not waiting for you to be exactly correct in your theology, Reformed Christians. He's telling us that He's not waiting for us to come up with some five-step plan of evangelism, to read the right books, or to come up with any other kooky evangelistic plan that in five years it's going to look nutso. He's powerful. And He works through those who trust in Him, who pray for Him, to work in their lives. That's what He's doing through Peter. That's our hope in evangelism. And there's no greater hope for us in our efforts to be missional, to live out the Great Commission. But do we trust Him? Do we trust that He's just as active today? That He is the one who makes us witnesses of Jesus Christ and Him crucified? That's the question. It's not a question of whether or not the Spirit is still at work in our dark world. It's not about this theological dispute about tongues. It's a question of whether or not our faith is truly Trinitarian. 
that we believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit continue their work of redemption and graciously equip us to do that with them, that He wants to involve us in it by His Spirit. And so perhaps the Spirit is giving you eyes of faith for the first time as you hear of the only true King, Jesus. Perhaps He's encouraging you and He's reminding you of the assurance of pardon you have in Christ, that your sins are forgiven. Perhaps He's equipping you so that you can go out and you can be used in this world for His glory. And praise God if He is, and then pray with the expectancy that He will continue to do so. You need not pray with uncertainty. You don't have to go like, Ah, man, I don't know if God will answer this prayer, but I'm going to pray it anyway. You know He's your Father, that He delights to give good gifts to you. And He delights to give you His Spirit, because by His Spirit, you were made a witness for His glory. And so without the Spirit, the work of the Great Commission would crush us. As Charles Spurgeon puts it beautifully, he says, If we have not the Spirit which Jesus promised... We cannot perform the commission which Jesus gave. And that's because we'd either smother ourselves, because we'd put all the pressure on ourselves, which in America we're really good at doing, or we'd walk away in frustration and despair because we get tired of being pushed away and put down and rejected. But by the Spirit, we who are lowly vessels of clay are then filled with the mighty ministry of reconciliation, with the power of God to go out and to be bold, humble but bold and loving. And so therefore we need to go out in all boldness and in all joy because we are first on our knees praying for God to fill us with His Spirit, praying to God to fill us with His same heart of impartiality to love all people and filling us with an understanding of who Jesus is, the Messiah. And so the redemptive work of the triune God is the only hope we have as we close out Missions Month and our time of studying the Abrahamic Covenant. Because no matter how dark this so-called post-modern, post-Christian, post-whatever world may seem, and the philosophers may tell you, the triune God is at work, and we need not fear. We must confidently trust in Him, because our God desires to save people of all kinds. Our Savior is the promised King who dealt Satan a death blow, and who will put the world to right by His righteous judgment. And our hope and our power and our help is in the Holy Spirit, the one by whose life-giving power we were able to gather and worship today. So to Him, the triune God, be all glory forever. May that be the prayer of our hearts and the song of our lips, and may He equip us for the work of His mission, so that His glory may cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for this sermon we have from Peter, Lord, all those years ago, that for the first time You brought people like us, Gentiles, Lord, who were once were not Your people, and You said over them, My people. And You poured out Your Spirit, Lord, and You saved them, and You made them witnesses, God. And you've been making witnesses for 2,000 years, Lord, that we are still here. We're still able to worship you, Lord. Because on our own, we would have messed it up after two years, if we even made it that far. And Lord, we ask that you who are impartial would continue to save people from all nations. That you'd bring them here, Lord. That we'd have joy in seeing many brought to Christ right here in Kennesaw. And pray, O oh Lord, that you'd fill us with a love for our Messiah, Jesus, our King. That you'd help our hope to be steadfast and sure in this election season, Lord. May we not be shifted by the tides of change and political policy, but may we, Lord, have hope in our rock and our redeemer. And may we, Lord, trust in the power of your spirit. May he work mightily through us, Lord, work in ways we don't expect, we can never plan. And may all this, Lord, be unto your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.